0: This
1: is a Socialist News and Views special
0: interview.
1: I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from on the road with this special interview previously recorded at Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis. Mirjan Siddhar, as an investigative journalist, has written a series for Unicorn Riot about Target's domestic spying programs that started in downtown Minneapolis in a series entitled 21st Century Jim Crow in the North Star City. Let's go straight to that interview. On Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves, so just tell us about yourself.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, first and foremost, my name is Merjan Sadar. I grew up here in the suburbs of Minneapolis, uh, went to Kennedy High School, uh, graduated class of 97, moved to Minneapolis in 2007 on the south side. Bryant neighborhood, historic black community, uh, that I've been active in for about a decade or so. Uh, other than that, I'm a a youth worker by background, a history teacher. Uh, I have a master's degree from Metro State, and I'm, I'm, despite all, all those credentials, I'm still very much a working class, uh. Fellow. I identify with the working class. In my 20s, I worked in a warehouse for almost a decade. I come from a working class family. You know, grew up with a single mom. Uh, so, so my my activism is very much uh, in line with poor folks. Uh, so, most recently in the last couple of years since George Floyd's murder, uh, I transitioned from edu- from being an educator. To journalism, uh, mostly investigative journalism, which is something I never, never thought I, you know, never imagined myself doing. But it, but it started really, it, it actually started before George Floyd's murder. A homie convinced me to start up a podcast because of my, my activism as far as teaching uh, uh, and, and really wanting to bring truth to, to folks in, in, raise consciousness around issues uh, that we're dealing with everywhere, but especially
1: in black communities. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And I read an article uh, last year by you entitled Target's Bullseye on Black Youth. And I know you've uh, written a number of articles since then around this uh, same topic. And I I was just reading an article on Unicorn Riot uh, recently as well. And in that article and subsequent, you talked about the public-private partnership between Target Corp and the police. And you also talked about the the program spreading across the country. The program initially was called Downtown 100 Initiative, and then I believe was renamed. Can you talk about the initiative and, you know, uh, kind of the biggest things that you've uncovered so far uh, in your reporting? Absolutely. So I first heard about what
2: was happening in downtown with this uh, surveillance police partnership led by Target when I worked at YouthLink, which is a nonprofit in downtown Minneapolis that provides drop in services and uh counseling services to youth experience and homelessness. And so I uh I helped um start up a black men's group down there and so in the course of facilitating that group for two years I would hear all kinds of stories of police brutality and harassment downtown um, experienced by youth uh, dealing with homelessness. And that, that at that time to me, that seemed to be an issue that deserved a lot more attention. And so it really sparked my activism as a youth worker, as a case manager um, serving these young people and, and, uh, you know, it, it led to a lot of it led to me and some of my coworkers am um, really trying to expose what was going down. But at the time, we really didn't uh, know half of what was uh, really going down. You know, we only had we had a, a limited view being right down there in the mix of things. But, uh, you know, so almost a decade after that. George Floyd gets murdered, and all these old articles are starting to resurface on social media. And so I found um, I found a couple articles um, that really shed light on Target's surveillance partnership with police, and it was really a, a, a missing link uh, that helped bring a lot of clarity to what was happening. When I was working down there and what uh, the youth were trying to tell me what was going on. And so what I found out was that Target created a massive surveillance operation um, that really it it amounts to a domestic spy program. I mean, let's let's call it what Mm -hmm. it is. And so this was following 9-11. But it actually had roots prior to 9-11. Target, going back to, I think, 1990, Target was funding Minneapolis Police and the Hennepin County Prosecutor's Office to fight uh, what they call livability crimes or um, fight against property crimes and stuff like that. So, so mostly low petty crime, and after 9-11, uh, Target began to invest much more heavily and not just policing and prosecution, but surveillance technology. So they um, they they announced that they were donating 30 surveillance cameras to the downtown uh, business district. Uh, but come to find out through my research, the projected costs, I think they projected that the costs were going to be a quarter million, while the final cost was really more like one and a half million. Come to find out, Target really uncovered a portion of that. The rest fell on either taxpayers or other downtown businesses and corporations. Mm-hmm. And I haven't um, quite figured out all those numbers yet but but it, it, it seemed to be very much uh, spearheaded by Target and they you know they used the guise of wanting to fight crime and uh, contribute to their community of Minneapolis where they relocated their corporate headquarters in the early 2000s and really what I found out which should be no surprise to anybody is it was about profits right Mm. this corporation was bound by law to generate as much profit for the shareholders as possible and Target found uh, a way to do that through partnering with law enforcement through partnering with uh, city government and Hennepin County government and creating this public-private surveillance apparatus or domestic spy program, um, and you know, so through that, what 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 the, what they were able to accomplish was quite remarkable. Uh, so on one hand, you know, Target was able to outsource their security, right? You know, Target is, is, along with retails everywhere retail. Uh, Businesses everywhere—they they're heavily invested in uh, loss prevention, you
1: know, right.
2: going after shoplifters. So Tar- target Target was, you know, having a lot of issues of people, specifically homeless populations, stealing from their stores, uh, which many other downtown uh, corporations, Macy's, um, also were, you know, dealing with. And so, so Target was able. To really, uh, kind of, outsource in, in a way that work to Minneapolis police, um, and so with Target their policy has been for a while is to let shoplifters, at least under a certain amount, uh, leave their stores, and with this new partnership with local police, they you know Target will collect intelligence uh, through their through their surveillance cameras and through their security guards monitoring what's happening, you know, activities inside their stores, they collect the information, they start to build a case, shoplifters, and then, you know, they share that intelligence with police, and so when, you know, shoplifters leave the store, they do their best to try to get downtown police to catch them, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, this this sort of arrangement was very beneficial to Target, but they, they... kept taking it further and further so by 2004 they launched what they called the safe zone so that's you know the surveillance cameras that they donated to the city uh, they they established a, a area a zone um, i think i think it was like a 40 block radius or something like that wow. uh, which they they declared the safe zone and they declared it off-limits to people that they, uh, viewed as problematic. So again, these are, for the most part, these are shoplifters, uh, people on the streets panhandling, um, people, you know, in, involved in what they call livability or lifestyle crimes, uh, so drug dealing, prostitution, or sex work, which really is, you know, people just, uh, struggling to, uh, Make ends meet uh, to get out of their situation, or, or to even you know get you know their their daily fix or whatever. Right. Uh, but but for the most part, victimless crimes and, and nonviolent crimes. And so what I what I would see and what I would hear from the young people I was working with that they're getting arrested for jaywalking, for spitting on the sidewalk, for uh, disorderly conduct, just trumped up charges and you know what? What the young people were telling me really is they're, they're being arrested, they're being targeted and harassed because they were black, and because they really had no place to go. Uh, so you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, were uh, you know shoplifting or selling weed or or, or uh, involved in sex work, uh, young men and women, uh, uh, you know, involved in sex work, and again, the the common. Uh, denominator was homelessness. These were young people on the streets, uh, largely to to no fault of their own, right? Uh, young people uh, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, you know being uh, victims of circumstances uh, born in poverty and to communities that have been divested in divested from by our government and um,
1: and and just to just to add to what you say when you say targeted, I mean, you mean targeted? Like, they, I mean, I was reading one of the articles. You're talking about, um, you know, they know these kids by name. You know, they know that they're living on the street. Like, they're talking about them in meetings by name. They're, you know, these they know what's go, what they're doing.
2: Right. So, so, uh, so they launched the Safe Zone um, program. That was 2004. By 2006, and and, and so this. This surveillance partnership that Target formed with police started in Minneapolis where the headquarters are, but it it soon went nationwide. So by, I think, the end of 2004 or by the beginning of 2005, you know, it was on the East Coast. And by 2006, it launched its Safe Cities program, which was basically the Safe Zone um, uh, expanded to, to a national program. And so... Uh, by 2000, I think 10, they created the Downtown 100. So, so this surveillance apparatus wasn't just uh, Target investing in surveillance technologies, um, you know, in the form of CCTVs. They they began a human surveillance program mm-hmm. uh, with the Downtown 100, which so basically, you know, it was a, a public-private partnership between downtown corporations. Nonprofits like YouthLink, Catholic Charities, Salvation Army. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if Catholic Charities was part of it, but Salvation Army, Harbor Lights, uh, Saint Stephen's, and uh, uh, police and the prosecutors and probation officers of the County. And so they began creating a list of supposed a hundred repeat offenders, and when we talk about offenders. Again, these are people who are involved in petty crime, not not violent offenders, not felony um, right. criminals, felony level stuff. And so they um, they created this this list. But due to funding restraints, the list actually was only a 50, not 100, even though they they kept the name downtown 100. Mm. And so what they would do is they would track this list of 50 of their most. uh um, what they what they considered priority offenders who were downtown making uh, downtown unpleasant to the people they wanted shopping at target, right uh, which was which they were very explicit about that their target population was uh, suburban uh, suburban women. Uh, and you know the code, you know that that's code for white women with children, um, who they, you know, they wanted to make it safe for them to travel from the suburbs to come downtown and not be harassed by homeless folks or not uh, be asked for money and whatnot, or really not to be reminded of the underbelly of capitalism. Right.
1: right. And the inequality, you know, downtown is like one of the most unequal places on uh, in, in Minneapolis as far as the starkness between, you know, it, well, you're it, talking it about downtown. people that are homeless and some of the biggest buildings, you know, that we have biggest money people. Exactly.
2: And it's, you know, downtown is the, the, the business center. So it's where people, poor or rich, go for opportunity mm-hmm. for, you know, to make money. And so uh, so the downtown 100 program, uh, they they meet weekly uh, uh, between probation officers, prosecutors, uh, social workers, police officers and business representatives. They meet weekly they share intelligence on this list of 50 offenders. And the goal is to keep them, restrict them from coming downtown. And so what they do is, uh, um, for, for those on the list who are active, right? Mm. Uh, so, so some might be on the list, but may have stopped coming downtown, you know, after being arrested or whatever. Right. Um, but for those who... Active, they assign uh, they they're assigned a case manager uh, with at the time it was YouthLink in St. Stephen's, and the the case manager's job is to you know remain um, a point of contact and to help uh, get them resources, but to also try to convince them to stay away from downtown and how right. to kind of navigate uh, all of this and the caseworkers would also be advocates with uh, with them in court um and so the the what we saw was they created this um this restriction called a geographical restriction and after you know it's proven by you know the prosecutors to the judge that you know this person has continued to be a problem uh, whether it's you know shoplifting or jaywalking or s- mm. soliciting you know or, or loitering or whatever uh, the, the the judge then uh, takes the steps to geographically restrict them from coming into the safe zone from essentially from being downtown right like, where, you know, the homeless shelters are where the social service organizations are that they're dependent on for services, uh, where they go, you know, seek counseling and therapy. And so, uh, you know, the downtown is home to these people, right? Right. So they, they get on this list, uh, of the downtown 100, they become geographically restricted from being downtown. And then that policy or that order by the judge allows police to arrest these people on site. So now if you're on this geographical restriction list, now when you come downtown, it doesn't matter if you're committing a crime or not. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, It doesn't matter if you're you know, panhandling or selling weed or asking people for money. Uh, you can be arrested on site just for being on this the streets where you have been restricted from being. And so it... it, it becomes this uh, vicious cycle of criminalization for someone who really their their main offense was being poor and trying to right. figure out innovative innovative ways to make money after being pushed out of our economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what I found through my research is not only was Target leading these criminalization efforts. But Target, going back a decade plus, were busted in a major scandal—not just in Minneapolis, but it was a national scandal of denying people jobs, specifically mm-hmm. denying Black people jobs. So Target was denying folks jobs, uh, you know, which is, is obviously contributing to unemployment and homelessness, and uh, you know the rise—you know—we we we saw a, a huge spike. During the two thousand and eight recession of homelessness, especially youth homeless, homelessness here in Minneapolis, and so, so my research ha- had um, shown that Target was not only a major contributor uh, by you know scandalously denying Black folks jobs, uh, and and it was uncovered in the um, Ban the Box campaign that was led by a lot of mm-hmm. grassroots organizations here. So so. You know, they they went even further. So not only are they denying folks jobs, but then they're paying the police and training uh, police here in Minneapolis and around the country on how to aggressively go after panhandlers and street populations and incarcerate them. So Target is literally creating this pipeline from the streets to prison for for populations who are not—they admit it, the city of Minneapolis, city attorneys and prosecutors— on the record, admitting that these populations are not—they're uh, not targeted for violent crime or, or for felonious crime, but for petty crime and for making the downtown streets unpleasant and undesirable uh, to, to to do business. And so, so really, what it amounted to was they at this time of you know great recession from 2008 to 2013, 14, whenever. Supposedly, it, it, it reversed. Uh, the, these young people, these homeless populations, were the scapegoat. Right? Mm-hmm. So, everywhere businesses were struggling, um, downtowns everywhere, uh, you know, cities across America and across the world were struggling uh, during this that uh, recession economy. Um, so it was it was really, I, to me, it's it was opportunism by a corporation like Target to to say, all right, let's target, you know, these vulnerable populations and let's create, uh, you know, the surveillance apparatus that really it targeted people with data mining precision. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so what I found is is I reported on this in my series, 21st century Jim Crow in the North star city published by unicorn riot uh, was that this surveillance apparatus It it, it really wasn't just, you know, this this uh, surveillance partnership with police that targeted black youth. What I found out was Target is heavily invested in not just surveillance technologies, but data mining as well. And and what uh, Target customers and really the general public needs to know is it has a hyper focus on. You know, vulnerable, uh, unwanted populations such as black homeless youth in the streets of downtown. But everybody really is a target. Anybody mm-hmm. who walks into Target stores mm-hmm. uh, was being tracked by facial recognition technology. Anybody who visited Target websites or uh, used Target donated computers, such as uh, Minneapolis public schools. Uh, target was a big donor to uh, computers and, and media centers. Um, and I would imagine uh, uh, school districts across the country, but uh, we have examples here in Minneapolis. Um, and so, so they're data mining people who uh, uh, you know, are surfing the web through a predatory uh, technology called Flash Cookies. It, that's, it's kind of, I think, an old, somewhat of an outdated technology. they got much more sophisticated stuff now, but uh, about a decade or so ago, Target was sued. For this, and so what? We, what what I have uncovered, um, and I would encourage folks to read part six of my series called "Target Supremacy." Is really, it's it's a domestic spy program, uh, and it's not just here in Minneapolis. It's a national program. Um, there, there's a coalition called "Stop LAPD Spying in Los Angeles," who has also been exposing Target's involvement and in what's been happening down there. And uh, so, so again, it's not just. Uh, Black homeless youth on the streets of downtown Minneapolis, it's anybody who walks into Target stores, who visits Target websites, or who has uh uh you know <laughs> uh you know, used Target donated technology to, to public schools ha- has probably been caught up in Target's dragnet of surveillance and that information is uh very uh very much shared with law enforcement as well as America's three-letter agencies. Mm-hmm. So, Target has boasted about their uh, work with FBI, with Immigration Services, um, and what I found out is Target has also they have um, sent staff to schools to to speak in in high schools and in, in here and around uh, the Minneapolis metro area, and I've talked to, I've talked to uh, a, a local activist and I've, I've, uh, I've read stuff online published by other folks who have, who have shared stories of a Target representative coming to speak to their class in high school and yeah. talking about how Target has freely worked with FBI, CIA, NSA and has given them open access, given these three-letter agencies open access to Target's uh, investigation centers, which they have two state-of-the-art forensic centers, one here in Brooklyn Park and one in Las Vegas. I think they built those in 2003, so just shortly after 9-11 and right as the U.S. is entering the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. And so... Everybody should be concerned, right? Um, as you know, as most of us, everybody knows about Edward Snowden's uh, uh, whistleblowing on domestic spy programs, but nobody has really uh, held Target Corporation accountable. We 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 know there's a, a lot, a number of corporations, especially telecommunications corporations, that were involved in the domestic spying dragnet uh And many of them were, um, you know, they claimed they were really kind of forced into it by the the government or or right. intimidated right. into it. But we see corporations like Target who very willingly and happily uh, forged these partnerships. In, in, in fact, uh, the evidence suggests it was Target's idea to become this uh, witting uh, player in this domestic spy program
1: I mean, it's called Target. I mean, is that not the, is that not a uh, kind of an odd uh, coincidence?
2: Dead (laughs) giveaway.
1: It's no. I was just going to say, and they continue to try to rehab their image, and um, you know, donate to different causes and things like that. And people hear caseworkers and stuff like that, they might think, you know, oh, they're trying to help something. But I think it's it's clear when you're talking about this stuff, you're talking about police going out on the street, intimidating, menacing you know, poor homeless folks, right? That's what's happening as a result of this stuff.
2: Right. Yeah. So in uh, 2006, the Downtown Journal, which is now a defunct uh, local news organization, but they reported that Target was training Minneapolis police on how to aggressively go after panhandlers. In 2010, I found a news source that said Target actually sponsored a two-week fellowship where they would invite law enforcement from around the country to come take part in a two-week training. Uh, and, and I don't know the details of that training, but it was very much tied to the Safe Cities uh, uh, program and ideology that was it, it, that's rooted in this broken windows theory that says, in order to prevent violent crime and some uh, of our greatest atrocities, Law enforcement should focus on petty crimes. That if they they address broken glass and broken windows and graffiti uh, in neighborhoods, when when law enforcement addresses that stuff, it prevents greater atrocities or violent crimes from happening. Well, the broken windows theory has been completely debunked, right? As, as, as a racist theory that that really just legitimizes racial profiling and the criminalization of poor folks. Um, But those practices have not ceased. And, and, you know, most folks who are familiar with this uh, know about, you know, the policies Giuliani, the the former mayor of New York city implemented in New York and Bloomberg after him, uh, which actually they they say it was under Bloomberg's watch uh, where there was really a peak of broken windows policing and, and the arrest of, black and latino men in new york city so so a lot of folks are familiar with what happened in new york city but are really uh, oblivious to these practices in smaller cities and you know the the you know heartland such as minneapolis and right my my research sets forth evidence that suggests that actually minneapolis was a model city uh, along with new york city of course after 911 new york had uh, a massive a domestic spy apparatus built, which which really predates nine eleven, but it was really legitimized and expanded after nine eleven. I forgot the name of it, but
1: mm-hmm. um, well, and I, we saw it scaled up here in Minneapolis too, with like two thousand eighteen with the Super Bowl, just of like pushing homeless folks out of the city, you know, the downtown area of the city, and just keep pushing people. Um, You know, out like that's that's the main thing. Just intimidate people and push them out like no plan to actually, you know, end homelessness or something, you know, something like that. And even before
2: even before the Super Bowl, we saw it with the murder of Jamar Clark and the occupation of the fourth precinct. We we began to see right uh, more investments in uh, in different law enforcement agencies working together in data sharing right. and fusion of intelligence. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of folks are unfamiliar with fusion centers, which are federally funded and locally ran and operated intelligence centers where FBI, local law enforcement, um, police sheriff department, uh, all kind of come together and share intelligence. And again, this was a big uh, phenomenon after 9-11. Uh, which you know they s- claim that it was the breakdown in intelligence sharing between FBI and CIA and NSA and whatever. But in reality, this was nothing but uh, uh, an excuse to uh, uh, bring back COINTELPRO Pro 2.0 uh, right and, and give it uh, validation uh, and, and a great opportunity. For not just law enforcement, but local politicians such as R.T. Ryback, the former mayor of Minneapolis, or Jacob Fry, the current mayor of Mm. Minneapolis, who are, you know, corporate tools, right? Like, let's let's not pretend like these people are, you know, supported and uh, lifted up by corporations who have a vested interest in breaking solidarity in our communities and creating these conditions that lead to this pipeline from the streets of prison for homeless folks. So, uh, so yeah. Um, yeah. It, we, it, it, it,
1: no, I was just going to say, yeah, we talk about, you know, this racialized policing downtown, um, you know, the, the Minnesota department of human rights released a damning report of the Minneapolis police department in Minneapolis as a whole, you know, that said, quote, after completing a comprehensive investigation, the Minnesota department of human rights finds there's probable cause that the city and MPD engaged in pattern of practice or race discrimination in violation of the Minnesota Human Rights Act. End quote. Have you have you seen uh, the report? And from what you've seen of it, have you uh, was anything in it surprised you? Is there anything they clearly you know that was missed in the report that they're not covering from you know related to what you've uh, you've uncovered? What's your what are your thoughts on that uh, recent report and what'll come of it? Well, I definitely was not
2: surprised by the findings. I haven't had the opportunity to read the actual report. I've been reading. Uh, news reports uh, about it and, and the, the major highlights of it, uh, but definitely not surprised by its findings, and, and I would imagine most black folks or mm-hmm. activists of, of all backgrounds uh, are not shocked by this. And uh, so I, I, I haven't had a chance to actually read the report, but I, I did, I was interviewed by one of the investigators uh, last year when I was uh, in the thick of my research into the downtown one hundred and the target mm. surveillance partnership, and so I told the investigator. I forgot how I, I how I contacted them. I think I might have saw an advertisement on, on mm. social media about the the investigation going on, and I think I reached out to them, and they called me uh, within a few days, and we set up an appointment to talk. But but uh, uh, I was I was I was happy that's with the integrity, that seemed to be showed by the mm-hmm. investigator who was interviewing me, and uh, so I, I told her, you know, all I knew about Target's surveillance partnership with, with police, and how I believe, and through my research, uh, there's plenty of evidence that suggests it's it's a pretty major uh, background story preceding George Floyd's murder, uh, if, if anybody, you know, uh, either here in Minneapolis or outside was, was shocked or completely kind of blown away that Minneapolis, of all cities, you know, led to this huge uprising that went global and this huge movement, not just for black lives, but to abolish the police, um, should, should definitely read my, my series, 21st Century Jim Crow in the North Star City, because people like me and other activists were not surprised. You know, right. Folks have been saying Minneapolis uh, is the next Ferguson, and uh, perhaps will you know when the shit hits the fan here will be even bigger than what went down in Ferguson, as well as Baltimore and some of the other cities that that had uh, you know a lot of unrest in the recent years. And so, so I say all that to say that as people you know read what. Target has co-created with the city of Minneapolis and Hennepin County, they'll, they'll understand that Target literally paid for draconian policing. They pushed mm-hmm. for harsher policing. They pushed for harsher prosecution. There's a quote in the Washington Post from January 2006. It's, it's really, it's the first story that I could find anywhere published about Target's surveillance partnership with police. And there's a quote uh, when Amy Klobuchar, who's now the senator uh, representing the state of Minnesota, she was Hennepin County attorney at the time. And she was so she was the uh, county attorney at the time that they established the safe zone partnership uh, Hmm. between Target and the police. And, you know, she's talking about how Target has increased funding to go after low level prosecution. But how they also demanded accountability, how Target is not allowing people to just plea out and not get jail time. Target is mm. really wanting to see, uh, uh, you know, punitive right. um, action being taken. And uh, so, yeah, that, so that report, um, as far as I know, I have, I have not seen any highlights that have featured what I told the investigator mm-hmm. about Target's role and all of this. So so that I'm disappointed in. I, I still need to read the report uh, just to see if, if any of that actually was covered in it. But it's important background because once folks really begin to understand and wrap their head around this massive surveillance apparatus uh, that Target built here in Minneapolis and around the nation, they begin to see, oh, it makes sense why uh, we saw, you know, and, not, and it's not to say that police brutality was new when when the Safe Zone, Safe City program right. started. No, you know what I'm saying? Black folks right. here in Minneapolis will say, no, every generation we've been struggling against this. Uh, and, and, and real quick, I just want to kind of mention, ironically, doing this research, you know, uh, I talked to a, a friend activist. Uh, she's older. You know, she reminded me, uh, a white lady from the suburbs, she reminded me as a kid in the 60s going downtown with her grandmother and her, gra- her her grandmother, you know, making racist comments about the Negroes downtown. And at the time, they were going to shop at Dayton's, mm. is, you know, way before there was a Target in downtown Minneapolis. And her point to me was, these policies that target uh, uh, have set forth are really old policies from their parent corporation, Dayton's. In mm-hmm. uh, this partnership, this downtown uh, partnership between corporations and policing goes back generations to Dayton's when Dayton's was really the major uh, shop caller and stakeholder in downtown Minneapolis, and so I. I I had to revisit uh, the, the, the riots or the uprisings of 1967 mm-hmm. along Plymouth Avenue, you know, and come to find out that was sparked uh, by an incident that it, it actually took place in downtown Minneapolis after the Aquatennial parade that summer in 67, uh, which was sponsored by Target Corporation among other, I mean, I'm sorry, of Dayton's Corporation mm-hmm. among other downtown businesses. And so it, it began with police at the end of the parade harassing uh, black youth downtown, uh, which was an ongoing issue prior to that summer of '67, and you know it escalated to uh, what uh, is now known as the you know uprising or the riots on Plymouth Avenue, but but that interesting history of Dayton's and, and, and their uh, you know uh, vested interest. Uh, in downtown and, and and keeping the downtown spaces white and, and free of these you know these pesky Negroes bothering these good white folks from the suburbs who just right. want to come down you know downtown and go shopping it's an old history and uh you know there's there i don't i don't see anybody making these connections we got to understand that these these are cycles and, and unless we really unearth uh you know its roots we're, we're, we're never going to um, disrupt right uh, this criminalization has happened.
1: And the, And the Aquitennial parade was created to um, to keep folks from memorializing the 1934 Teamster strike here in uh, in the Twin Cities. So you know that parade again is also created as a as a distraction from uh, from a lot of the other stuff that's uh, that's going on and of course Dayton, you know, we had as the governor as well. So it, again, it shows this whole public-private partnership that uh, that goes on. You know, so you know, based on what we know, police and the work they do with corporations, the ruling class. Um, you know, what do you see as the most important work? You know, going on right now to build, you know, better communities right here in Minneapolis. Like what? What? What can we do? What should we be doing?
2: You know, that that's a good question. Right.
1: And it's a big question. You,
2: well, and and. There, there's been a lot of focus on abolishing the police which it, it's a movement I support but I would also say I believe it to some degree it's a, it's a little bit misguided and what I mean by that is we have to understand that police uh they're they're low-hanging fruit they they are an activist told me a couple years ago police are just the bouncers at the club and so they're they're there to fulfill a function, you know. Uh, in that, the the people that that are funding them and the people that you know need them to fulfill that function are the ruling class, corporations, rich families, the one percent. Right. And so we got to understand that, you know, if we want to abolish the police, we we really have to address, you know, the the role police play in society, which is to protect property, to protect the power of the elite, and to protect that arrangement of, of you know, the, the the worker and the employer or the oppressed and the oppressor, and to, to you know, to protect that one directional flow of resources, of, of money, you know, leaving our communities and filling their coffers. Uh, so until we address that, uh, you know, this movement to abolish police, I I don't believe is going to really go anywhere. And if it does, they're they're just going to replace publicly funded police with private security paramilitary groups, which we saw after police killed Winston Smith uh, last summer, what was that, 2021, you know, in uptown Minneapolis, right across the street from the uptown Target store. There's all these private security forces uh, paid to protect the property around there to ensure that another 2020 uprising didn't happen. So, so we got to understand that until we really address this arrangement of uh, extractive capitalism, uh, there's always going to be a function or a need for police, whether it's publicly funded badge wearing police or privately funded uh, security guards who can get away with committing much greater atrocities against the public. So I, I believe, you know, if, if we're really trying to disrupt uh, these systems that are oppressive and that have created so much crisis, uh, we, we need to aim high. We need to aim for target corporations and, uh, you know, these, these government partnerships. Um, we got to understand this, this stuff is not coincidental. It is not... Unintentional. That it's very much by design. uh, That that you know the street to prison pipeline, the school to prison pipeline. These this this was a business plan, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know until we understand that, we're we're gonna you know we'll we'll go through the same cycles of of oppression and violence against the state, uh, and it'll look a little bit different next time, um, but. Uh you know if, if if we want to make advancements in this struggle, we have to aim high mm-hmm. um, at the at the shot callers and the folks who are really funding this and and lastly i I'll, I'll say is we gotta follow the money, right? So what I've learned through my research is target is really able to get away with so much of these what 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 I would say are criminal activities uh against our communities against against our people against vulnerable populations they get away with it through through funneling money money through their foundation right corporations set up and and, and rich families set up uh these foundations mm-hmm. where they could funnel money through with little or no oversight right, right? and so so they could don't give money to other foundations or Organizations such as the Police Federation or um, uh, other nonprofits and, you know, many of these organizations, just like unions or PACs or super PACs, really get to operate without a lot of oversight. And Mm. there's a lot of room for a lot of criminal activity uh, to take place. And, you know, we got to understand we we, we really have to... um, See the warning signs, right? Like when we see uh, huge spikes in crime happen at these coincidentally right at the same moment where people are rising up and these social social movements are are you know really um, making advancements. Um, we 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 see you know all of a sudden you know the focus shifts to intra-community violence or black on black crime or whatever as a distraction. And we really need to interrogate this and understand that much of this is by design and it's manufactured, manufactured to the point where there's evidence that suggests that either police or city officials or some covert uh, powerful forces are literally paying criminals to commit criminal acts, to distract folks, to terrorize folks, to say, Hey, We actually need the police. Mm -hmm. And how dare you, uh, talk about defunding the police at a time where carjackings are at an all time high. Shootings, random shootings are at an all time high. Shot spotter technology is, is, you know, detecting shots everywhere, not just in Minneapolis, but across the country at an all time high. Well, well, this, much of this is a racket. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not to say that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not dismissing organic crime. We know or, organic crime happens, especially in times of economic strife like the pandemic, but we could usually, uh, you know, if we interrogate that, we could usually get to the bottom of it. We know when street gangs are at war with each other, and we know when to expect, you know, the uptick in violence, but much of the crime, uh, that we've been experiencing, um, you know, again, uh, uh, has been manufactured and the patterns we see, we see similar patterns to the nineties when Minneapolis was dubbed murder Mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden kind of out of the blue, there's this spike in, in street crime and, and certain types of crime, uh, precisely at the time when people were criticizing the police, when the mayor, the first black first and only black mayor of Minneapolis back then was on the record, uh, saying that you know, the, the, uh, the brutality of Minneapolis police needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And, and so w- 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 one other thing I'll add is I, I have part seven of my series Dropping Any Day on Unicorn Riot of uh, uh, my series 21st Century Jim Crow in the North Star City, and it's, uh, it, it's about Target's cozy relationship with the press here in Minneapolis and abroad and w- without a uh, 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 real independent press that's independent of corporate influence and corporate funding uh, without uh, press with integrity we're not going to know what's really going on because the, the corporate press is really in on the arrangement it's profiting and benefiting from mass incarceration and surveillance partnership with police and the pipeline that keeps sending uh, you know these unwanted populations to prison so so I think that's something that people listening we need to demand better from our press uh, from the Star Tribune who is a huge player in this propaganda of protecting target and making them look like champions uh, even though although I would I would argue and you could read it in my series, Published by Unicorn Riot, the Target is very much responsible for George Floyd's murder and the uprising uh, that came afterwards. Although Target's sales and profits have soared after the uprising, after their store on Lake Street was looted, Uh, Target has made record breaking profits. I think it was $15 billion just profits Mm -hmm. in 2020 alone. Um, And You know, of course, they put on this whole campaign of trying to uh, fund black businesses, be champions of racial justice and whatnot. Well, people need to ask themselves, why is Target doing this? Are they just doing this out of the blue? No, they're doing this because they've been caught red handed Mm -hmm. funding uh, uh, this stuff that really it blew up uh, and it became a global issue in 2020. And so, you know, these corporations don't just get all of a sudden, uh, you know, one day wake up and say, Hey, I want to do right by the community. No, people have to hold them accountable. And you know, in the seventies, after Contel Pro was exposed, um, you know, the FBI's counterintelligence program, that spied on not just communists, but black civil rights activists and black power radicals, um, uh, including my family back in the day, uh, you know what? What we what we saw was uh, congressional hearings and efforts to really expose and reconcile what happened. Uh, uh, I, I should say there were efforts to do it. There, were, there was no real reconciliation. There was no real abolishing of the counterintelligence program or the domestic spy operation. But there was a real efforts by grassroots activists and groups um, and some some progressive uh, members of Congress at the time. We need something like that uh, uh, in, in 2022. Uh, we need congressional hearings. We need, uh, you know, we need the city of Minneapolis to really come forward uh, uh, and, and hold city council hearings um, and investigations and, and really partner with grassroots activists. We can't trust, the city to investigate itself. So mm-hmm. uh, we can't trust uh, Congress. We can't trust the U S government to investigate target corporation when it was in this, when it, it has been and still is in many ways in this cozy partnership that conveniently allows the CIA, the FBI, NSA to spy on Americans in a post nine um, 11 era. So we, we need people to really um, to demand Accountability and to apply pressure, especially right now, uh, Ilhan Omar and her colleagues in Congress are up for a re-election. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I reached out to Ilhan Omar's office a year ago, um, and they responded swiftly. At, at least you know they set up a time uh, for me to talk with her staffers. But to my disappointment, they they they've done nothing since. You know, it's mm-hmm. been almost a year since I. I've heard from them. They, they did no real follow-up. I never had an opportunity to speak with a congresswoman herself. Well, I know, you know, I knew Ilhan before she was mm-hmm. our representative. Uh, so I, so I'm, I'm really disappointed because, you know, a lot of us look to folks like her and the squad to be champions for our issues. But come to find out, really, in many ways, Ilhan and, and other folks who we see, you know, as these progressives are really playing the same old game. And when it's convenient or when it's easy, you know they can they can strike at or, or, or symbolically, you know, speak out against the power, you know, these elites and, and the rich. But when it actually comes to holding power accountable and doing mm. something and, and taking cues from constituents and a- activists, I've seen no movement, uh, uh, and, and that's that's really disappointing
1: yeah i i really appreciate you speaking with me Mershon. um you know is is there anything else you want to share about minneapolis police or the city or you know the struggle moving forward before you go
2: you know i i'll just say that um i i unfortunately minneapolis has become a city that i believe is very unsafe for activists and you know we're just five months into 2022 and Homicides are, you know, still near record high. I'm afraid, you know, this summer we're going to continue to see record violence and manufactured crime. So I just, just, you know, I want listeners to be careful, to take care of each other, but to also pay attention and to begin to interrogate what's happening. Again, you know, if if we're paying attention, we'll see uh, some of the most obvious answers are usually the right answers. Um, And and so uh, I've been very vocal about what I've discovered. And also, you know, I, I, I emailed the mayor and my city council member, Andrew Jenkins, who's the president of the city council. And I've emailed other folks in positions of power to say, hey, this is what I found. You need to do something about it. But also to say you need to protect whistleblowers like myself and like the people who have been speaking to me. Uh, you know, at great risk of, you know, not just in their professional life, but in their personal life Mm -hmm. being harmed. Uh, So so I say that to say that I'm afraid of retaliation of myself and of other activists and whistleblowers out here trying to disrupt these systems of oppression. Well, I appreciate
1: all the work that you're doing. And I think, yeah, I think it's super important the work that Unicorn Riot does and uh, that other uh, journalist, dude. Thanks for talking with me.
2: Thank you, I appreciate it, man. One more thing. Oh no, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, hey, I want folks to tune into the People Power podcast. I got a new season that I'm going to be dropping in days. Here, you can find my content on Libsyn or YouTube or other other uh, podcast platforms.
1: And that's our special, we have links to all the articles and podcasts mentioned today in our show notes, so check those out. Thanks for listening. Solidarity.
2: This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.